Welcome to the Life and Times Video Games, a documentary podcast about video games and the video game industry, as they were in the past and how they came to be the way they are today. My name's Richard Moss, and this is episode 15, The Boss Button. For as long as there have been computer games, they've been played and frowned upon in the workplace. In the early days, back when computers were huge, room-sized mainframes that you accessed via remote terminals, games were deemed a nuisance. Both writing them and playing them took up valuable computing time. And I mean valuable, as these were machines worth millions of dollars that, depending on the exact time frame, might have had processing power to match today's scientific calculators or for the really advanced later systems, maybe something more like the original iPhone. Computers back then were meant for serious pursuits and serious pursuits alone. Scientific research and education and the like. Not that that stopped students from messing around with them. In the book Hackers, Journalist Stephen Levy dedicated multiple chapters to these idealistic tinkerers who cared little for what the establishment considered productive, and so were tolerated only when their tinkering occurred in the dead of night. The hackers, at least as Levy told it, just wanted to push the machines as far as possible to devise ever more brilliant and efficient feats of software engineering. And in so doing, in 1961, Three hackers pretty much invented computer games, with Space War, a two-player outer space battle inspired by E.E. Smith's space opera novels. Sometimes, as in this instance, the system administrators were a bit more laid back about frivolous uses of expensive computers. Although Space War was something of a special case, because MIT was actually gifted the $120,000 machine it was written on. But even so, sometimes games were allowed. Because games were, after all, a great way to experiment with the technology. But that goodwill only lasted as long as the games didn't interfere with other, more important uses for this limited computing power. Back in episode 2, we heard from Brand Fortner, programmer of what was arguably the first computer flight simulation, AirFight, as he explained how the Control Data Corporation actually encouraged game making on its Play-Doh system. They weren't so hot on game playing, especially for computationally demanding games like AirFight. It got people very excited. The administration of Play-Doh, of course, hated us because we soaked up their entire computer, which cost millions of dollars. I heard similar things from Greg Thompson and Dave Lebling when I did a Polygon story a few years back about Maze, or Maze War, as it later became known. It was the first first-person shooter, a game that they wrote at MIT, where you and up to seven other players, a human-controlled or robot-controlled, connected over the ARPANET, a forebear to the internet, and could run around a maze shooting each other. Here's Dave Lebling explaining why the administrations at MIT and their friends over at Stanford tried and ultimately failed to ban the game entirely. The only drawback was that the powers that be didn't like it very much. 
because it clogged up the blacks, which, you know, were a very scarce resource. And people had a tendency, because to run maize, you had to load the maize program in instead of the usual usual terminal program, because for all these things, only had 8K of memory. People would load the maize program in and then forget to reload the terminal program or it would crash or something and they'd forget to reload. They, would, they wouldn't know how to reboot it in black. By the 1980s, computers had shrunk. Most computer access and use shifted from super expensive mini computers and mainframe terminals in universities and research labs to microcomputers in homes and offices. Computers like the Apple II, Commodore 64, ZX Spectrum, and IBM PC rapidly spread around the world. And as people searched for things to do with these machines, most settled on two broad functions, productivity and play. Cheaper machines like the C64 and Spectrum tended more towards the latter use. They were given to children and teenagers to encourage familiarity with this technology of the future. They were embraced for education and games in the home. Other systems like the Apple II and IBM PC cost significantly more to buy, and as such, they found their way mainly into schools and offices. They were favoured for work, for business, especially once they had productivity programs like Lotus123 and VisiCalc, both forebears to Microsoft Office. But of course, they too had more than their share of games. Hundreds of thousands or perhaps millions of people found themselves tapping into this new world of personal computing through their jobs. Pretty soon, of course, most of them would discover games, but many lacked access to computers outside of work, and so they chose to sneak in some gaming time during business hours. Meanwhile, others, well, let's just say they knew the value of a good break, and so they snuck a few of their games in from home too. That said, in either case, there aren't many bosses or managers in the world who would tolerate such blatant slacking off, so playing games at work could get real risky. Enter Roger Wagner. Roger Wagner was one of the giants of the early home computer software industry in America. He'd started his career as a science teacher, but by the late 1970s he'd recognised the coming technology revolution. And so he founded a company called Southwestern Data Systems and started to write software for the Radio Shack TRS-80 and the Apple II computers. The Apple II was where he made his name. Roger became an expert in AppleSoft Basic, the programming language that came with the machine. And in the process, he created some of the earliest tools and documentation for other AppleSoft Basic creators. Things like Roger's Easel, a paint program, and AppleDoc, a documentation utility. That work led to magazine sidekicks, first as a columnist and contributor to several Apple II magazines, and then as a contributing editor at the legendary Soft Talk magazine, which for a time stood only behind Byte magazine in the depth of its influence in the computing sphere, despite its singular focus on Apple systems. 
I mention all this to underscore that Roger Wagner was a big thing in the Apple computing world at the time. And back then, anybody who was a big thing knew everybody else who was a big thing. They were all friends for the most part. And one day, a whole bunch of them, more than 20 stars of the Apple II world, all got together for a trip down to Mexico. I think I read once that Bruderbund co-founder Doug Carlston organized the trip, but I can't find that reference now, and I didn't have time to ask around to check, so don't take my word for it. Anyway, they all got together and went to a place called Cantama to learn hang gliding. During one of the many casual conversations they would have had on that trip, conversations about life and business, their hopes for the future, anxieties in the present, musings about the world, somewhere in all of that group bonding, Roger got to talking with Doug Carlston and Apple co-founder Steve Wozniak, and maybe some of the others there, about an idea. What if people could quickly press some simple key combination while they're playing a game that would instantly replace the game with something that, at a glance, looked like work? What if computer games could have a boss key? They thought the idea had merit, and Roger had the perfect game to test it in. He'd signed on as publisher of Bizarre, an arcade-style Apple II game by John Besnard, where you control the aliens invading Earth. A twist on the old Space Invaders theme. First on the attack from space, and then on the defense against Earthly tanks after a successful landing. If a player pressed Control-B, the screen would swap over to a simple spreadsheet of income and home expenses with a copyright statement at the top. I thought this was kind of funny. To Outer Space Simulations, Inc. It was hardly a foolproof trick to hide your play from someone, be it a teacher, parent, spouse, boss, or tattletale colleague. But it would work well enough, maybe, to avoid drawing attention your way in the first place. The idea quickly spread around the industry. Bruderbund, of course, adopted it. But they weren't the only ones. DOS Game Asylum implemented it as a suspend game feature whereby a quick tap of the F9 key would temporarily clear the screen completely. A little later, in 1983, Friendly Soft's Friendlyware PC Arcade, a collection of eight games cloned from popular arcade titles, came with the F10 key as its boss button. Over the next 10-15 years or so, the boss button would find its way into hundreds of games, both shareware slash independent and commercial types, spread across a whole bunch of different genres and platforms and publishers, and for good reason. A Reuters article in early 1988 referred to a survey conducted by the computer game publisher Epix Software that found 66% of the 750 executives polled admitted to using their work computers for non-work purposes, which in 1988 meant... They were probably either keeping a database of their golf scores, or they were playing games. And indeed, some 40% or so admitted to gaming on their computers, sometimes during office hours. Access Software's public relations director was also quoted saying that some fans of their games wrote in to ask for a boss button on their favorite title. Similarly, in the Wall Street Journal, 
An April 1986 article mentioned that publisher Spectrum Holobyte put an unusable spreadsheet, most boss buttons triggered unusable spreadsheets, in its submarine Gato at the behest of some customers. The company's executive vice president, Philip Adam, told the journal that they even got a letter from someone suggesting that the game advocated cheating employers' time. Though the letter, ironically, was written on company stationery. Who's wasting whose time? For PC Mag's John Dvorak, who, for those currently following the tech industry, is exactly the guy you're thinking of, the very best boss key, as of mid-1989, came in a Bruderbund-published home computer conversion of the Star Wars arcade game. He may have had a point. When you pressed F4, up came a DOS-style table listing sales numbers for four product SKUs with uh, loads of additional options. You could show a graph, which was really just an animated Bruderbund logo that you could turn and spin manually or automatically. There were product records with data to match that sales table. And they also had brief biographies in database format for two of the programmers, plus a spreadsheet that you could actually edit and a help screen that maybe wasn't so helpful, but offered statistics on your gaming exploits so far. Dvorak was so impressed by this quirky incognito toolset that he suggested they should win some sort of award for it. Golf games and card games were unsurprisingly more a mainstay of the trusty boss button than other genres, as they were the two game types most suited to a constant hop-in, hop-out playstyle. The most impressive of these that I've come across was probably Hole-in-One Miniature Golf, which presented a functional word processing window when you pressed the boss button. So you could actually start typing stuff when the boss comes by for that extra believability. Not every boss button tried to be so convincing. Some of my personal favourites made a joke out of the whole thing. In the DOS version of Infocom's Leather Goddesses of Phobos, players could hit Control-B to bring up a document formatted to match the company's cornerstone relational database program. But while it looked real at a glance, with items like inflatable milkman, Vaseline pump, rubber sheets and nylon rope, plus a mode named Titillate, closer inspection would have certainly raised major suspicions. Sierra Online took the comedic take down a darker path by adding the boss button to the long list of ways you could die in its games, either because the narrator forgot what was happening before your panicked press of the boss button, or because you'd been a very, very naughty person in trying to hide your play and should be punished with a game over. And they'd show a tally on screen of your total playtime so far to really humiliate you if you've been caught. Activision's Atari 2600 action pack was less cruel. It came with a mum key that delivered a warning about the dangers of playing video games all day. Meanwhile, an obscure Mac game called Aqua Blooper Piper had its boss button trigger a fake system bomb dialogue box. Perhaps as familiar a sight for Mac users in the early 90s as the blue screen of death was to PC users right up until, I guess, the Windows XP days. 
Macintosh shareware developer and publisher Freeverse Software had some of the cleverest fake productivity screens. In their early days, pressing Command-B in a game would bring up a black screen with a progress bar in the middle and a random piece of text above it. Working very hard, it might say, or rejecting planned obsolescence. A few years in, they got more elaborate. Some Freeverse games added in an ever-changing line graph, showing things done today with constantly updated, randomized tallies for time-wasted, cards-played, monkeys and bananas to add to the realism. For Burning Monkey Solitaire 2, they went wild and made the boss coming command replace your game with a fake desktop. The progress bar was still there, now formatted proper Mac style but still spouting nonsense, while scattered around the screen were files and folders that were probably going to do more harm than good for anyone actually caught slacking off. I'm talking things like a text document titled 10 Reasons My Boss Sucks, and files and folders that refer to cat asphyxiation. There's an adorable kitten desktop image, a Netscape browser window for the Purina cat food website, and, of course, icons for a bunch of very unproductive Freeverse published games and toys. For people who actually, know convincingly wanted to keep their anti-productivity apps and activities incognito. Some magazines in the mid-90s ran features with advice. Kind of ironically timed, I should add, because by then, thanks to Windows 95's popularity, the humble boss button was more or less obsolete. The ease with which someone could now hit Alt-Tab or minimize a window to quickly switch out of a game and into an actual appropriate work app meant that dedicated boss buttons weren't needed anymore. And so almost as quickly as it had appeared and spread, the boss button faded away. Well, emphasis on the almost there, because as I've already touched on, joke implementations lasted well into the new millennium. And some years later, uh, around the middle of the last decade, it had a strange, very brief second life on the CBS Sports website during America's yearly March Madness college basketball obsession. But there was also a war going on in this Windows 95 era between the more tech-savvy administrators and their similarly tech-smart workers, in an accidental throwback to the file-naming wars of the mainframe era, where games were listed with serious file names or hidden, as we heard in the Load Runner episode, behind secret codes within functional utility programs. In this 90s version, the bosses had tools like Anti-Game, the game's eliminator, which searched out and optionally deleted games using some kind of signature recognition algorithm that ferreted out game executables even if the name had been changed. It was a desperate attempt to counteract the huge negative impact multiplayer games like Doom were having not only on staff productivity, but also in some cases on entire company networks. A handful of subversive shareware utilities jumped into the fray to help the workers keep their freedom to play, with elaborate hiding and magic wand-style transitions that, at the press of a button, would replace undesirable games, browser windows, chat apps, and anything else unrelated to work, with a bunch of work-type things. The war never really ended, but somewhere along the way it seems like it became background noise. 
and the idea of a boss button has become a relic of a simpler time. It's almost quaint now to think that once upon a time, some 20, 30 years ago, you could install anything to your work computer and hide it behind a fake productivity screen at the tap of a button. And I guess it just goes to show how fast technology advances and how quickly the past can become this surreal, bizarro land where everybody seems so weirdly, naively excited about some mindless little trick that wouldn't fool anyone who was actually paying attention. But then again, I still think the boss button is a pretty cool bit of workplace subversion. And we could all use a little subversive play, at least every once in a while. Life and Times of Video Games is created entirely by me, Richard Moss, music and writing and editing and all. As I noted in the last episode, this is part of a new season where I'm drawing solely on research and analysis, kind of as an experiment, because the usual interview-driven episodes take longer to make than the show's revenues can justify. If you enjoy the show, I'd appreciate your support. You can help by sharing your favorite episodes with friends and on social media, by leaving a review in your preferred podcast app, or by making a donation. I accept one-off donations via paypal.me slash mossrc and monthly recurring donations on Patreon at lifeandtimes.games slash Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Patreon backers also get various perks like bonus interviews and sound bites, behind-the-scenes info, and the chance to vote on future episode ideas. I'd like to extend a huge thanks to everyone who's supported me so far, especially my producer-level backers, Wade Trigaskis, Vivek Mohan, Simon Moss, and Seth Robinson. And as always, you can find show notes and past episodes and everything else at the website lifeandtimes.games. Until next time, my name is Richard Moss, and this was The Life and Times of Video Games. Thanks for listening.